Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in to Deep Dive, the all music books podcast where we talk to authors of music books, bios, history, and criticism. I'm your host, Steve J. Today's guest is Ira Robbins, who is the founder, editor, writer, and publisher of the rock and roll magazine Trouser Press and the seminal Trouser Press Record Guide series. He recently wrote and published a novel that is set squarely in the London glam rock scene of the 1970s. Welcome, Ira. Hi there. How are you? We're good. We're good. Looking forward to talking to you about Trouser Press, which was a main part of my youth and growing up in music. Mine too. Yeah, in different ways, I'm sure. <laughs> so Trouser Press was first started in 1974 under the name Trans-Oceanic Trouser Press, which I discovered in my research was a reference to a song by the Bonzo Dog Doodah Band. Is that right? It's a bunch of things, actually. We thought we were super clever. So uh, Trouser Press is the name of a song by the Bonzo Dog Band. Yes, that's true. Transoceanic was to convey the sense that we were angling ourselves editorially towards British music, even though we were in New York. TOTP, of course, being the initials of Top of the Pops, as well as the name of a kink song about it. So we were pretty pleased with ourselves. Although several years later, like no one could remember who came up with the title. <laughs> well, they're all very clever. I didn't know any of them. And, and in fact, I, I came on probably mid-70s. So that early transoceanic period, I didn't know. But obviously, as we'll get to, I came to see a lot of those. You know, at first, it was very much an independent mimeographed fanzine. Yeah. It focused on British bands. The three people started Trouser Press, myself, um, Dave Schultz, who was my uh, best friend from high school, and a woman named Karen Rose, who we met at a record collector's house in Yonkers. And she was a Jeff Beck fan and a Peter Frampton fan. Dave and I were Who fans, and we somehow decided that those elements should go together in a magazine. <laughs> so, you know, the early issues were very much geared towards British invasion and sort of subsequent developments in Britain. I mean, we had a article in issue two or three by Dave Frick, who would later go on to become a very famous Rolling Stone journalist, about the animals. We had a big interview with Robert Fripp of King Crimson. We were sort of waffling between collector stuff, 60s stuff, and prog rock in the early days. So at what point did you have a realization that maybe what started out as a hobby could you know, become a livelihood or a career? It took a while. Our development was very slow. Our business meetings took place in a post office on, uh, near Grand Central. We didn't have an office until about two years in. We didn't go monthly until three years in. We went from like mimeograph to photo offset to two-color photo offset to full color. I mean, it was very much incremental. We started the magazine in, in March of 74. I finished college in the summer of 75, and sometime after that, uh, I wound up a, a part-time job that I had and decided that the magazine was doing enough business that it could afford to pay me a pittance of a salary. Mm. And so I, I just jumped into it that way. So it was a couple of years. It's interesting because you did become that proper full-color magazine with a pretty devout following, if not just you know dedicated. What was your philosophy, musical and otherwise, when you made that switch? Did it change out of just the more Brit scene? We went through a bunch of different developmental changes editorially. I mean, the British Invasion stuff that we were doing kind of led us in the teens of the magazine to 
running auction ads in the back for record sales. And that was kind of a business that supported us for a while. But then we sort of realized that we had greater aspirations than, you know, six-point type selling, you know, Z-Liebdich reissues and things like that. And uh, the music was changing. I mean, we we weren't really prog rock fans. We just sort of felt that it was interesting to write about. And we found people that wanted to write about it and wanted to read about it. So we kind of left that behind after a while. And then, you know, I mean, we started in 74. By 76, you know, we were hearing the glimmers of pub rock from England, and that sounded interesting. And then in 77, a couple of British writers, you know, they were kids actually, found us and you know started sending us stuff. And it just made what was going on there in early 77 just incredibly exciting. We had a, an arrangement, a distribution arrangement of some minor sense with Gem Records, which was an importer and a distributor in New Jersey. A guy called Marty Scott ran that. And he also had a label called PVC, and he did a lot of cool things. We would get imports from them uh, as part of our sort of general arrangement that we had like a credit with them and they would send us records just on request and so we started getting like all the new wave singles you know jam clash generation x vibrators x-ray specs penetration and you know and we just kind of went, went completely batshit crazy excited and we had these two writers in england and we started asking them to write as much as they could about that music which we were excited about we also read about that stuff in the british weeklies i mean we were completely slavishly addicted to melody maker and the nme and sounds a little bit but i mean dave and i were reading melody maker in in high school i mean absolutely devoted to it like we would come in surface mail, you know, folded up into these little tubes and we would like hide behind our chemistry kits in, in high school and, and, you know, read the papers. And so that stuff had a lot of influence on Trouser Press. You know, the bands that they were excited about, we got excited about. One of the things I found so endearing about your magazine when I was a kid was the wide net that it cast, you know, and things were definitely happening. But, you know, early on you featured Martha Hoople and Fripp and Eno and Sparks next to The Who and Jagger and Jeff Beck, like you mentioned. I noticed in going through your website, you even had Jimmy Page on the cover of one issue. And the very next issue is Johnny Rotten on the cover. Yeah, I mean, we were, you know, we were sort of in between commercial ambitions and the desire to keep publishing after a while, which required a certain amount of common sense publication logic. And also, we just followed what we were excited about. I mean, you know, we weren't that doctrinaire in our taste. I grew up in the 60s, you know, listening to AM radio graduated to FM radio, became like a, you know, a, a blues fan. And I like bluegrass. I mean, we wrote about a lot of different things because we liked a lot of different things. And there were different personalities involved in the magazine. And our editorial policy was always unofficially was just kind of like if somebody was excited about it, and it wasn't like completely repulsive, you know, we would do it. So we took pitches from the writers that we liked. What, what happened very organically was we evolved an aesthetic. Um, and I'm not sure if it's an aesthetic that can be articulated because, as you say, it's a little hard to explain how Jimmy Page and, and Johnny Rotten fit together. I guess we saw ourselves in a general sense as, you know, a white rock and roll magazine with a very strong English orientation. Kind of whatever fell into that realm, we were cool with. We liked other things, but we certainly weren't going to write about Bill Monroe. I mean, that just wouldn't have fit in a rock and roll magazine. We certainly could see the value of hearing Jimmy Page talk about the sessions he played for, you know, Marian Faithful in 1965, as well as Johnny Rotten mouthing off about the state of England in 1977. 
The Jimmy Page thing was actually really interesting. Dave Schultz did that interview. It was it ended up being pretty much the longest, most detailed interview Page ever did on the subject of his past. Wow. It wasn't a Led Zeppelin interview. It was a, what he did before Led Zeppelin, basically. And it ran in three parts, plus a discography, I think. And it's been reused and republished all over the place. It's in Charlie Cross's Led Zeppelin book, I think, as a CD. It's been bought and sold and, and quoted endlessly because it really was the definitive one. And the story attached to that, if I can go on a little bit further, is they've had a relationship with a publicist who worked with Zeppelin, and when they came to New York in 77, they put up at the Plaza Hotel for a week uh, while they played like four or five shows at the Garden, and she promised Dave an interview with Paige, and he was kind of like intrigued by the idea of talking about his session work in his early days and, you know, the Yardbirds and stuff like that. It ended up being one of those things of like, he's going to do it tomorrow, you know, just give him a little more time. He just needs a little, you know, he's tired tonight. He'll do it tomorrow. No, no, it can't be today. It'll be tomorrow. And they eventually finished their sets in New York and flew to L.A. And so Dave had to follow them out to L.A. I mean, we we had no budget for anything. I mean, you know, it was kind of like, oh, my God, oh, my God, how are we going to do this? And plus, you know, in 1977, communications was like, you know, telephone, pretty much. That was it. And so Dave went out there and, and Paige kept him waiting like another four or five days before he would finally speak to him. And Dave was just basically hanging out. And then Paige finally agreed to do it. And they did this like unbelievably detailed, valuable, historically relevant and eternally beneficial interview. But like we're sitting back in New York chewing on our, on our nails going like, when are we going to get this article? We need to transcribe the tape. We have to get this into the printer. It was a complete nightmare, but it ended up really great. Well, like you say, that solid gold now you know, when I started getting into you, it was definitely in like the 70s. And it's safe to say that there were not a lot of mainstream music mags that gave a rat's ass about the punk scenes in London and New York. Maybe Cream Magazine. But what was the hook for you guys? Was it strictly the music? Was it the youth? Was it the energy? Was it all the above? It was the music. I mean, like I said, we used to get these records from Jim. We would open up the box. We had a turntable in the office and we just put them on and be like, oh my God, this is so great. Oh my God, oh my God. Everything just sounded great to us. And then WLIR started up on Long Island around that time. And they started playing a lot of, of imports and a lot of stuff. And I think that was helpful to me. Certainly, it opened my ears to a lot of stuff that I would not have otherwise heard. You know, but no, for us, it was strictly the music. We were like in our mid-20s, and we'd kind of grown up on, you know, teenage rock and roll. I mean, you know, going to Who shows and, you know, going to the Fillmore and stuff like that. And this was like a complete recharge. This is every bit as exciting as when we first discovered rock and roll, only it, we're 10 years older. And right about that time, New York Rocker was with another fairly pivotal publication, and Punk Magazine popped up in New York, and all three of you overlapped. I was wondering, was there a camaraderie amongst the three of you, or were you competitive, or did you know each other? Um, that's a complicated question, actually. Punk started in 75, and The Rocker started in 76. The Rocker was started by Alan Betrock, who we knew because he was a record collector extraordinaire who we had done business with and had been uh, involved with in a couple of different ways. And he was the one that got us to do auction advertising in Trouser Press because he, he had a magazine called The Rock Marketplace, which was a complete fanatic collector's magazine that we could only aspire to being half as good as in terms of the research. He decided to shut that down. And he gave us the, the advertising so that we could run it. So when he started The Rocker, it was kind of like, I mean, we were cool with it. You know, it, it was just sort of an odd thing because we had this very strong conviction, or at least I did, that we were a national, if not international, magazine. And so the fact that we were based in New York couldn't be given any extra weight editorially. So we were very, very remiss about covering the bands that we were going to see every night. 
I mean, intentionally so, and it was a mistake. It took us a while to kind of get around to it. We had a thing called New York Notes for a while, and we did articles on television and milk and cookies and the fast and the planets and people like that. But, you know, we never jumped on that bandwagon until those bands became nationally viable. I, like, we did a lot of Blondie stuff because we knew those guys. I mean, I was in a band with Jimmy Destry before he was in Blondie, but we didn't do them editorially before they were, like, on a label. So the rocker was cool with that. I mean, what the rocker was doing was really good, but it put us in this odd position of having kind of allowed ourselves to be scooped on something that we could have done. And so that was weird. Punk was a different story. Punk kind of came out of nowhere in 75, and and they just sort of exploded on the scene in this really sort of pushy way. You know, they, they sort of elbowed people aside. I'm not saying they did it intentionally. I mean, they were just trying to get started. They were really kind of a thorn in our side conceptually because they were covering a lot of stuff, but not in any way that we recognized. Mm. They didn't do like journalism. They were doing like pictures and they were doing like funny little little scribbles. We had some business dealings with them and they were really hard to deal with. They were kind of disorganized and very unprofessional and they kind of reveled in that, which probably was to their credit. I mean, they, they were setting themselves up as sort of the legs, the legs McNeil as a magazine, you know, kind of like following legs as personal style, even though he was just a kid who hung around the office at first. We didn't really get along with them. was never friends with any of those guys, really. We did some stuff with them. Alan sold New York Rocker to Andy Schwartz, who we were cordially friendly. Um, we weren't close at the time. I mean, Andy and I have gotten to be friends since. I mean, I went to his wedding. But it was weird. I mean, you know, we were competitive. I mean, you know, we sort of, you know, it, it was a small pond and we were, you know, we were small fish in a small pond and we kept bumping into each other. You know, we would look at ads that they got from record companies and go like, oh, how'd they get that? Oh my God. You know, and we'd look at articles they did. I guess the other thing that the Rocker did, I've never really discussed too much, is that they had a, a much broader uh, editorial view than we did musically. I mean, they were covering hip hop, they were covering like, you know, dance music, and they covered a lot of downtown stuff, which we were never part of, you know, that whole mud club scene. Um, we never had anything to do with that. But the Rocker, you know, they were very comfortable with the James Whites and the Contortions and the, the Lydia Lunch people and the No Wave people and stuff. We kind of felt like there was another area that we were deficient in, but it wasn't right for us, but it was right for them. Well, you, had, you still had a pretty hardcore fan base. I always found you had, you know, whether it be Tom Petty or, or Bebop Deluxe or Johnny Thunders, there was always something really interesting to read in your magazine, and it, it came at you in a, in a smart way. According to Wikipedia in my research, you cited, <laughs> quote, a lack of interest in the continuing but stagnating new wave scene that left your writers with very little to say. Is that accurate? I've answered this question a lot of times, and there were several corollary factors. One was we've been doing it for a long time in relative terms. I mean, you know, I started when I was 20. I was coming up on 30. Uh, I had some personal issues I was dealing with. MTV had come along and was starting to gain some real traction nationally. And what they were doing was showing videos and playing music for free, you know, for anybody that had cable, of the bands that we thought we had kind of a lock on editorially. Because, you know, we were writing about these British New Wave bands and thinking like, you know, well, we can tell people what they sound like and what they look like and what they have to say. And then MTV would come along and just play the damn music. And so, you know, we felt like our franchise was being undercut that way. We also had major money problems uh, towards the end because we had signed a distribution deal and kind of, you know, our final goal of ambition was to to get proper national newsstand distribution and we did and it required borrowing some money and it required paying printers to print a lot of extra copies than we'd been printing pretty much on spec you know I mean, the way national newsstand distributors work they take your magazine and then they pay you like 90 days later for whatever got sold and the rest of it just gets pulped mm. you know we 
were kind of hoping that we would sell like what would have been for us a good rate of like maybe 35% of what copies were put on sale, you know, which is still an unbelievable amount of waste, but that's the way the magazine business worked and probably to some extent still works. And then like, you know, they didn't do a very good job. You know, there's this whole concept about how newsstand sales are regulated. So what they're supposed to do is if you put 10 issues out and you sell five of them the next month, you give them seven issues. And if you put 10 of them out and 10 of them sell the next month, you give them 20. Mm. It's called regulating. They weren't doing a very good job of it. So after like a year, we found out that like we were still selling like 20% instead of 30%. And so they were paying us a lot less than we, we expected. Our printer bills, you know, were still huge and our loans were coming due. And, you know, da, da, da. anyway, there, there was a lot of stuff going on at the same time. And, it, and then editorially, we made this weird discovery, which was that we had built this audience kind of unexpectedly of like sort of MTV audience of, of kids who liked like Adam Ant and Duran Duran and Culture Club, you know, the sort of the colorful video bands. And that was stuff that we were writing about because when it was kind of new, because it was interesting to us, we were curious about it. But as they became successful and as they became kind of overexposed, we really lost interest. We had a point where we were writing like articles about bands that we didn't like solely because we could put them on the cover. And then we were writing negative articles about them. We used to get mm. letters from, from readers going like, I bought your magazine thinking I would, you know, read about how great Adam Ant is. And you said mean things about him. How dare you? Mm. You know, which is a weird problem. We always felt that what we had to say was entirely up to us that, you know, we never promised anybody that we would give them a good review or barter to cover, you know, based on access or anything like that, you know, we just did whatever we felt like doing. And so we realized that we were letting ourselves be swayed by a new audience into doing things that we weren't happy about. Mm. And I remember we, we sort of hit a point where somebody would write an article, you know, about one of these bands, and then it would be like riddled with like editorial comments, sort of digging into like, you know, making fun of the bands. We found ourselves at odds with ourselves, essentially. You know, we, were, we wanted to put Adam Ant on the cover. We didn't like Adam Ant's music, you know, that much. But we also recognized that what he was doing was kind of silly. And, you know, we weren't taking it that seriously. And so it became this sort of contradiction and this sort of hypocrisy. And it, no one was happy about it internally. And so we found ourselves sort of in this bind of having to decide whose side we were on. I finally decided that there was no comfortable way to do this, that we either had to abandon what was keeping us in business or abandon why we were in business in the first place. Oh, that's well said. Well, lucky for us readers, you found another niche in the Trouser Press Record Guide books. They were reverentially dubbed the Bible by many fans. What can you tell us about these projects? Well, it started in 83. Um, I was approached by an editor at Scribner's, a young guy who wanted to do music books at Scribner's. And he, he and I had a really funny lunch. I was really thrilled at the prospect of, you know, sort of being given this opportunity. And we had a fishing expedition lunch of like, do you have any book ideas? You know, you have anything you'd like to do? And I was like, you publish a book of ours? And, and so he turned out, of course, to be Michael Peach, who uh, is now the CEO of Hachette and was the editor of David Foster Wallace and many other A-list authors. But at the time, he was just starting out in publishing, and we were accessible. What we cobbled together with the idea was to take kind of the reviews that had run in Trouser Press as best we could and, and then, you know, write some new ones, lump it together as a competitor 
a specific topic new wave competitor to the Rolling Stone record guide because they weren't covering that stuff at all. You right, know, I mean, right. I, I had contributed to what to the blue and I think, and their attitude was like, we don't care about that stuff. You know, and they certainly weren't writing about indie records at all. So we thought, you know, that we could kind of just wrap our arms around everything that could be called new wave, which weirdly enough in 1983 was actually possible. <laughs> <laughs> as inconceivable as that sounds at this stage. And so we did. So the first book came out in hardcover. Trouser Press Guide to New Wave Records um, on Scribner's. came out, I guess, in probably late 83 or something like that. It was a good project, and it, it did pretty well. Proceeded from there through a number of other editors, a number of other imprints. It went from Scribner's to Fireside to uh, Simon & Schuster. Collier Books did one of them. It was just a strange project because we just sort of like kept adding to it. I was editing it, but I was writing like this gargantuan number of reviews. And then we did the last, the fourth one. I did the fourth one and it was just like mind-bogglingly a huge amount of work. And, you know, I, I kind of moved on to other parts of my life. I wasn't the publisher of Trouser Press anymore. You know, I had a job. I had, you know, this stuff to do, I had, you know, people to deal with. You know, the prospect of doing another one finally became unthinkable to me. I mean, it was just too much work. I mean, it was like basically going into hibernation for the better part of a year. Unlike a lot of book projects where you can kind of work at them at your own pace, when you've got a book about records that are still coming out, you know, every day that you waste is a day that some record that you should have in there is going to come out and is not going to be in there. Right. It got to be a real kind of mind puzzle of, <laughs> you know, when can we cut this off and how much can we get in there? And then, you know, how quickly can it be published? And I had a lot of problems with the publishers for a number of reasons. And finally, after deciding I would never do another one. I decided that the only way to do another one would be to basically leave the old ones behind and not just keep augmenting them because they were getting large. You know, I mean, the fourth one is maybe 500 pages long. And, you know, the choice was going to be going to like, you know, minuscule type or going to like a thousand pages to just keep adding stuff. And it seemed to me that, you know, we published the same stuff four times already. I mean, a lot of the reviews had been added to, you know, the first book had, you know, two records by an artist and the second one had four and the third one had six and the fourth one had 10, you know, and it was kind of like, well, why do we keep rerunning this stuff? The thought that I had finally was to basically leave the old stuff behind in the four books that it existed in and start from scratch. And so we did a new one. The fifth edition is called The Trouser Breast Guide to 90s Rock. And the idea was that it would only cover the records that were released you know, in that decade. And we did it in like 1996 or seven or something like that. So it wasn't even the whole decade. Mm -hmm. But that created a whole set of problems because then you're kind of picking up the story in midstream. You know, so it was like, you know, you have bands that had been going since the 70s, and it's like, well, here's what they did in the 90s, you know, and so right. that was a whole complicated mess. Plus, that book took literally, I know this is going to sound insane, but it took literally nine or ten months of 18-hour days, seven days a week wow. to write and edit. I mean, I was reviewing at one point upwards of a dozen albums a day. That's a lot. And I do a lot of book reviews, but nothing like that. That is a job you must love. Oh, it, it almost killed me. I mean, at the end of it, I couldn't listen to music. You know, <laughs> I just like, I literally couldn't listen to music for like six months after that because I was so inundated. I mean, I'd be, I developed a technique, and it's not something I'm very proud of, but I sort of developed the technique of just being able to put a record on and thinking of things to say about it while it played. By the time it was finished, I'd finished the review. Uh, Granted, a lot of these, you know, these are one-paragraph reviews, right, so, like, right. I was doing, like, bands that had eight albums. I'd spend a day doing one band that had eight albums. Sort of impressionistic journalism. You know, if, if it was sort of specific genre things, you know, like a hardcore record or something like that, there, you know, there wasn't that much I needed to delve into it that I thought, you know, which probably is not 
not the most responsible form of criticism because, you know, there's always more you could think about and more you could say about a record. The only way to do this was just to blast through it. And so I did. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. We're talking with Ira Robbins, who's the founder and publisher of Trouser Press, and as we'll soon see, TrouserPress.com, as well as a new novel. So Trouser Press first went online in 97. In 2002, you consolidated the contents of the five record guides on a new site, and now, oh happy day, 2020, a significant relaunch of the site, which includes all 93 issues digitally scanned in their entirety, along with the reviews and the features and a community forum and more. That's a hell of an undertaking. It's way overdue. Um, you know, the original impetus for doing the website was to put the contents of the four original record guide books online so that the fifth one had some connection to them. Right. You know, the idea that I, I had was that if you were going to buy the fifth one and you weren't going to have all the stuff that was in the previous ones, here's a way to read it all. So you could kind of meld the book and, and the website and you'd have the bigger picture. Once the book was kind of defunct, that evolved into a let's put some new reviews in here. So I got a lot of writers to contribute and, you know, we, we were having fun for a while. We were adding a lot of records and a lot of bands and it kind of really got updated a lot. Um, and then this guy uh, that I didn't know, uh, publisher of a magazine called Bada Boom, gramophone did an issue called records that should have been reviewed in the trouser press record guide and they had a whole pile of reviews of things that we hadn't done and so i i worked it out with him that we could incorporate some of that stuff on the website so we did so you know it was going along nicely for a while um and then the job that i recently retired from kind of became pretty demanding and the rewards emotionally of spending a day writing a record review that maybe 10 people would read kind of were lost on me for a while and so i stopped doing it really and the, the site then started collapsing technically and the last straw was that the forum, which was really the most active portion of the site, broke. 
uh, the mm-hmm. software became outmoded and the, the whatever the latest version of the platform it was running on couldn't support it and the whole thing just kind of like fell apart. With some time on my hands this year, I, uh, I'd really like to, to get that back together. So I found somebody to work with and he rebuilt the site from scratch uh, and did a great job. I had some ideas for what I wanted it to be. And, you know, my goal here is to sort of create an opportunity to publish articles and reviews as well, but, you know, to shift the focus from being just an archive of old record reviews to having as you say, the archive of the magazines, and to go forward as a place to, to publish music journalism of varying sorts. So seeing these magazines back in full context on the internet uh, really took me back. You know, you have all the advertising of the day and from record labels and, you know, guitar stores and amps. And it was just a trip to see. Everything's faithfully reproduced. Now you've brought TrouserPress.com up to date for everyone to reexamine. Where do you see the new trouserpress.com going forward? I'm kind of open-minded about it. I haven't really come up with a firm plan. I, right now, it's just kind of a platform for anything that I want to do. I've got some people pitching ideas. You know, we've run some new original material already. We had a spinoff magazine called Trouser Press Collectors Magazine. It was a newspaper. Each one of those issues had a really good uh, historical article in it. And so I'm going to start running some of those because those have never been online before. I'm going to start running some of those on the site. You know, I've got people with assignments, you know, doing stuff. I've got a, a video premiere coming up next week that I'm keen about. So, you know, just trying to like sort of get in the get get in the swing with the kids these days, you know, trying right. to do the same thing as everybody else. I mean, I always thought kind of like in a weird way that if we had stuck around, we would have been pitched for. Mm. I mean, I, what they've accomplished is quite remarkable and it's very much commendable. I think, you know, that it's sort of clear that that they have the same sort of basic idea about how to do this stuff as we did. Independent and have strong opinions and be very broad in your curiosities. Right now, I think of ourselves as, you know, as having the, the opportunity to go to, to catch up with the people that we may have inspired once upon a time. Right, right. And that's a really good analogy. And it points sort of to my next question that today, online music journalism is much more ephemeral than it was in its print version. So rather than breaking news, will tp.com now focus on, you know, think pieces and longer forms or, you know, passion driven articles, you know, true to your brand? Is that a fair assumption? Not sure how to how to answer that. I, a lot of water's got under the bridge, right? I, I'm not comfortable trying to be, you know, Brooklyn vegan. I have no mm. no skills in that regard. I, I I don't see myself as being an arbiter of contemporary music the way I thought I was 30 years ago. I haven't kept up the way, you know, younger writers have done. Certainly the whole sense of what stylistic parameters are reasonable is gone. You know, I mean, I think the proliferation of music and the proliferation of self-released music, you know, makes the kind of, of sort of definitiveness that always sort of was at the back of my mind impossible. And so I don't even really know where to start, you know, and I, I and I think my answer is like, don't start. Let others do that sort of thing. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure exactly where I want this to go. I mean, I, you know, it kind of depends on what sort of pitches I get from writers. It's in the very early stages. I mean, the nice thing is, you know, unlike a monthly magazine, there's no bills to pay and there's no deadlines to meet. So, you know, I'll just kind of feel my way through this until something comes along that I like. It may just be nothing, you know, or, or it could really, you know, become something significant. I'm kind of toying with it right now, I would guess is the best description. Right. Well, I mean, you've put up an amazing historical piece and I think any of your fans, myself included, you know, really appreciate that point of view uh, from the old magazine mm-hmm. and identified with some sort of trouser press philosophy, for lack of a better word. So, I would assume that, you know, through new content, it is always going to be trouser press. 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, we do have a very defined viewpoint of things. The, the weird problem that I'm feeling right now is that, you know, on one hand, trouser press is known, you know, for, you know, for want of a better descriptor, you know, sort of new waveness. But at the same time, what I'm doing is mostly historical. And so, you know, I'm not sure if there's much of a connection point in 2020 between, you know, the zombies and um, the national. I'm a little concerned about the idea that I might be building two separate audiences here, you know, right. where, you know, who have no real interest in each other. I'm curious to see which trend of this wins out. You know, and, and maybe it beats two things in one. I mean, I was always very adamant as a magazine publisher that you define what you are and you, you stick to it and you're very clear about why someone would want to read you. I mean, the thing that always made Trouser Press great was that it felt like a person, you know, in a way. If you were a kid in, you know, Oklahoma reading Trouser Press, it felt like you knew the people mm -hmm. that were talking to you in the magazine. It wasn't like this random collection of stray writers. It was like a viewpoint. It was like joining a club, right? And I've heard that from people for, you know, for decades, you know, that like I really felt like I understood who you were, you know, I, like you... I was like having a friend. I think with the website doesn't have that same obligation because people just can click on it. You know, you're not asking anybody to subscribe or buy an issue every month. You're just putting stuff on Facebook and saying, hey, we've got an article about, blah, 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 blah. Right. you know, and if somebody's interested, they'll click on it. I mean, today, the uh, official Go-Go's, the Facebook site endorsed the cover story that we did in Trouser Press about the Go-Go's. And, you know, all of a sudden there's people, you know, Go-Go's fans coming to the Trouser Press site. Right. First. right. I was going to say that's kind of the beauty of the Internet in that, you know, you've got this historical perspective. But at the same time, there's a ton of people out there who never heard of you who may migrate to your site and say, that's good stuff. Yeah, they can go to the site without even knowing what the site is. You know, I mean, like they're going to read an article. They're not going to, you know, subscribe to a magazine. You know, I understand how different this is, and I'm, I'm willing to live with that. You know, it doesn't really bother me to think of people not understanding the whole thing. I mean, we tried to put a little introduction on the site explaining what it is, and there's a lot of FAQ stuff, and there's a lot of backgrounder stuff. You know, if people are curious, you know, I'm not making any money off this. It's not about clickbait for me. I'm just curious to see if we can build up an audience that actually can give it enough momentum to support paying right and maybe running some advertising and, you know, doing the kind of things that would give it a real liftoff rather than just kind of like, do I feel like doing this today? Well, everyone should go there. It's www.trouserpress.com. And I've been going, you know, obviously doing some research here, but I, I've been flipping through issues that I had well, probably 40 years ago. And I was that kid growing up in Florida who looked at your magazine and found, you know, that along with the cream maybe. But some of the others didn't really appeal to me. So uh, mm -hmm. I know exactly what you're talking about. You know, I, I do have to hand it to you. You seem to kind of keep moving on and, and changing your skin a little bit. You have a new book out. And it's called Mark Bolin Killed in Crash. It's your second novel, and it's steeped in music. You know, I mentioned the London glam rock period. How did this project come about? Um, I wrote my first novel about 10 years ago, and it was about 60s radicalism, which is something that I was very much involved with when I was a kid. Um, the response I got from a lot of people was like, gee, why didn't you write a book about music? That's what people would want to read from you. Well, I specifically didn't want to write about music because I've been writing about music my entire life, and I'd like to do something different. So that kind of stung me a little bit because it was frustrating. You know, I couldn't get a publisher for it. I self-published it, and, you know, it didn't sell a lot of copies, and, you know, not, not a lot of people read it, although the people who did read that thought it was really good. When I thought about maybe doing it again, doing another one, I thought, well, I suppose I should just give the music thing a try and, you know, like not do the obvious opposite of what people are suggesting would actually make a difference. So I was very keen to, you know, to write a book that would be published, not necessarily a book that would be a bestseller, but a book that would be published. And so I thought, well, what would I like to do? And so my basic concept was I've always felt that the glam rock era in London has not been well documented and it's not really well understood. I mean, pretty much the only thing 
most people in America know about it are the movie Velvet Goldmine, one Mark Boland single, and some Quiet Riot covers of Slade songs. I just always felt like it was kind of underrepresented in America. I mean, to me, Roxy Music is a real godhead band, Slade and T-Rex and Wizard. And so I, uh, my goal was to just sort of inhabit the time and place. The reason I write fiction is to put yourself in an environment or a time that you would like to be in. It's, it's like time travel. You know, you just kind of like you dream it up and you're there. I had a setting first and a time, and then I just worked my way around to thinking of what kind of story I wanted to do. I'm a really bad-thinking fiction writer because I don't actually plot out novels before I write them. I just start writing them. kind of started with a um, character, then I had kind of my plot starter, and then I sort of went on from there and built it out as I went along. The vision I always have in my head is that it's like being a train conductor who has to put the tracks down every time you have to move the train forward. Mm. So I'm, you know driving the train 10 feet, getting out, putting down another 10 feet of track, driving the train forward 10 feet, backing it up, putting down another piece of track, going in a different direction, and then driving that way. It's not the easiest way to do it. It takes it forever. But that was the goal, was just to put myself in London in 1972. Well, that philosophy may help my next question, although maybe not. But interestingly, your protagonist is a teenage girl. What was that like, writing from that perspective? Well, one of my strongest impulses as a writer, as a journalist, and as a, as a fiction writer, is to avoid the obvious. I mean, I really have a knee-jerk bad reaction to things that are typical and familiar. And so in the interest of not writing about myself and in the interest of not having kind of a myopia of excluding other parts of the world, I just kind of felt like it would be better to, to make my protagonist a young girl. My first novel, the protagonist is a woman also. So, okay. I mean, it's kind of a, a thing with me. I'm, <laughs> it's a, like a good challenge to myself to live in that world and to not be myself. I have a very strong aversion as well to thinly veiled memoirs fiction. Right, right. And so while I will readily admit that there are events in both of my books that actually occurred to me, there is nothing that I would say in the books plot-wise or character-wise that have any basis in real life. You know, here's a girl who's kind of a nobody, and what would happen if she got sucked into the, the world of glam rock, you know, kind of unintentionally? And I just sort of, you know, started building her up as a character. It, it would need a 15-year-old girl to tell me whether I've done a good job or not, but, you know, so far I, I haven't had anybody tell me that, like, that seems unrealistic. Well, no, there, there are definitely bits in there when she starts to get into it where, you know, I can take myself back to first hearing Bowie or Martha Hoople or T-Rex or Slade or, or whomever, and, and it was just so different. And a lot of those feelings that you have her go through, you know, I think is kind of evergreen in terms of discovering new music and new worlds and new passions and all that. So I found it really, really good. One of the things that was really cool is you incorporate a lot of British slang. And it's some of them were harder to figure out than others. But I found myself having some fun trying to read it. And then I'd read it in that accent. You know, I don't know if other people have told you this. And then I noticed at the end in the author's notes section of your book, you wrote that a lot of what you learned as a kid in Brooklyn, came from rock and roll, and that the Beatles brought not only songs, but also these exotic new words. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I mean, for some reason, I've always been a slang fan. I mean, I just love learning, you know, regionalisms and made-up words. And I mean, as a kid, it was a way of belonging. If your friends, you know, said stuff, you started saying it too, and then you were cool. And I wasn't a very cool kid. So, you know, anything I could do for a, a small bit of cool was to my benefit. And, you know, I mean, I just always had that in my life and, and just kind of was always on alert for like picking up phrases and words that were local. When we started reading the British weeklies uh, in high school, they were riddled with British slang and we adopted it. I mean, you know, not the accents. I mean, I <laughs> 
I've never <laughs> gone around pretending to be British or talk in newsreader voice or anything like that. I mean, my friends and I and the Trouser Press people, you know, we just incorporated it into our language. I've always been kind of keen on that stuff. And I literally have a shelf of British slang dictionaries in my office. So when I wanted to write this, I thought, well, one of the things that will make this fun for me is to indulge my passion. So I went pretty whole hog. I mean, to the point where a lot of people who've read this were like, oh my God, you know, you, you expect Americans to be able to follow this? A really top-notch British music journalist that I know read it recently, and he was like, you know, I think you may have overdone it on the British <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> um, I mean, he, he, he didn't correct any of them, but he, but he just felt like that it was a little too much. But then I always figured that maybe that would get the book published in Britain. I really liked the idea of having somebody read the book and then go like, wait, this guy's American? <laughs> just sort of the, the achievement of being able to write sort of in that vernacular. Well, for me, it just kind of dug the hole that I was going through deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. And, and I did sound it out. And like I said, there are a couple I still haven't figured out, but it was fun. And it was part of the whole journey into this world, you know. And, mm -hmm. and as you say, this book is about, quote, things you didn't do in places you didn't live, written in the voices of people very different from me, using words outside my native vocabulary. That's what I wanted to do. I think if you invert all of that, it would be the book I would least want to read in the world. Mm. You know, I mean, really, books in which people tell you, oh, then I did this and then I did that, but her name was, wasn't Dorothy, it was Dolly. If I wanted to write a, you know, a memoir, I'd write a memoir. But I, I, I certainly wouldn't call it a novel because, you know, my life's not that interesting. And to write a novel, you need to make stuff up, right? Right. You know, I figured if I was going to make stuff up, I should, should really challenge myself in a way that would make sure that I was making stuff up rather than falling into the trap. Without giving too much away and hearing about your work, you know, strategy and how you kind of just make it up as you go along, is there a sequel planned? And to the novel, no. Um, I am working on something, though. I'm working on a, an anthology of my work. Okay. You know, with the whole Trouser Press thing and the magazine archive and everything, I've been sort of really stuck in this sort of going back over the old days zone. I realized that I can uh, put together an ebook of my work. I mean, I've written a lot mm -hmm. in, in a lot of different areas and for a lot of different places. And, you know, some of it I'm proud of and some of it I'm not. And it's an interesting project, but I mean, I've got all that stuff and I've just been working on it. And it's interesting piling it together and organizing it. And, you know, I'm writing narration to go with it so that, you know, whatever the circumstances around an interview or a concert review or something like that, you know, I can add some distance and, you know, I'm writing some essays to go into it about what it meant to be a music journalist and stuff like that. Maybe I'm wildly overestimating people's curiosity. I don't see there's enough interest to actually publish it, but I think as an ebook, it'd be great. So um, that, that's what I'm working on right now. Well, the DIY mantra runs through virtually everything you've done. You know, you've published your own magazine and you published your own books, the website, and now you've written a novel. Uh, I'm curious how this has sustained you. And also, what do you think the DIY ethos means in the internet age, which is so immediate? The internet age means for DIY that it's much more feasible. I mean, when we started publishing a magazine, it was complicated. I had to learn what a second-class postal permit was, that we had to cart magazines to the printer. And, you know, we had a lot of very complicated, mysterious things that we had to learn how to do that wasn't just doing it for yourself. It was also, you know, educating yourself. Whereas, you know, the internet makes everything so simple. The fact that Amazon will publish your book is something that was inconceivable 20 years ago. Right. You know, I mean, 20 years ago, if I wanted to publish a book, I would have had to have gone to some vanity press, paid them money and had them make me like 100 books, which then would sit in you know, my closet until I could pulp them or whatever. You know, so the fact that Amazon says, oh, you know, just upload your word file. It's like, oh, OK, yeah, let's do that. You know, and I mean, it's a lot of work still. I mean, I spent, you know, two months, you know, formatting it and correcting it and checking it and 
getting the, you know, the cover squared away that my wife designed. But once it was all said and done, it's there, you know, and I mean, it's selling a little bit and, you know, people are buying it and writing about it and getting me on podcasts to talk about it and stuff. And, you know, that's just all great, you know, and, and the fact that, you know, I have a website now, if I feel like writing an article, I can just post the article. The why part of DIY has gotten a lot more efficient over the years. Um, the downside, of course, is that, you know, a lot of people are publishing stuff all the time in a way that makes the value of what anybody's saying somewhat diminished is certainly adding to the general pollution of noise and confusion. It's made things possible, but, you know, that, that obviously lowers the barriers to people for whom it should be impossible. Well, I want to say welcome back, Ira Robbins, but I'm not sure that you went anywhere. It's nice to be able to find you, and I would encourage everyone, especially Trouser Press fans, to go check out TrouserPress.com or any serious music fan. It's an amazing piece of history. Thank you so much, Ira. I really appreciate it. And um, My pleasure. His name is Ira Robbins, TrouserPress.com, Mark Bowen, Killed in Crash. If you'd like to find out more about his book, please visit AllMusicBooks.com. You can buy it through our site. You can also check out the rest of our deep dive episodes there. I'd like to thank our engineer, Steve Folsom. Finally, a big shout out to Frankie and the Pool Boys for their one-of-a-kind music played throughout this podcast. You can check them out at frankieandthepoolboys.bandcamp.com and on all the major streaming services. Please support your local and independent musicians and writers. We're out until the next time, and thanks again for tuning in to Deep Dive, an all-music books podcast. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.